I think it's safe to call it a one in a hundred year event. I know we did use that for the GFC, but this is really a one in a hundred year event. Very unique. 20, 2019 was unique as well. I mean, there, I think the, the pins and strawberries was a one in a hundred year event, but this is of, of a totally different scale. This is affecting Agreed. everyone, not just berry lovers. <laughs> Hi, I'm Saren Jayamana, and you're listening to the Life Coach Podcast. What makes me qualified to be a life coach? Absolutely nothing, which is actually the only prerequisite for being a life coach. I always thought it was weird they don't teach financial literacy at school, but who cares? School's out. No, wait, school's back again. Hang on, no, it's definitely out. Wow, pandemic, you're really messing with the routine. As always, this episode contains general information only and doesn't take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. So today's muck-up day and by now I hope you're feeling a little more confident in the financial literacy stakes. Throughout this series, we've learned how to make small changes to build better savings habits. We've learned why investing now is investing in our future. We've learned about how buying a house might not be an impossible dream. And we've learned to tell the good from the bad when it comes to debt. But in this world of job makers, job seekers and job keepers, is any of that still relevant today? Well, just before school's out, economist David Robertson drops back in to help us navigate a post-pandemic world from the perspective of your wallet. We cover how to be prepared for anything, working in the gig economy, as well as dealing with mental health. David's two cents? Well, the future may not actually be that bleak. Trust David to be ever the optimist. Well, David Robertson, welcome back. Uh, Thanks so much for coming back. Pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Let's start with the obvious. Uh, Is the world ending? (laughs) I'm, I'm happy to report that I'm very confident that it's not. And look, obviously, this has been just such a a shock to everyone. Wow, what an unbelievable year we've been through. I've got a feeling the New Year's Eve celebrations uh, welcoming in 2021 and saying goodbye to 2020 will be particularly enthusiastic. So you've got quite an optimistic perspective, which is great. I love that. We all need to hear a lot more of that perspective. Do you want to elaborate on your optimism? Well, and and maybe just saying the world isn't going to end doesn't necessarily mean I'm super optimistic. Oh, you mean it's going to keep going like this? <laughs> this is it. We're, we're just no. strap in. I'm, I'm naturally a glass half full sort of a person and it's still half full. I have to say in terms of, you know, forecasting what it's all going to look like in one year or two or three, it's never been harder, uh, never been more challenging to sort of gaze into the crystal ball. It all looks fairly opaque. But, you know, again, if we're talking about a one in a hundred year event and I sort of draw comparisons back on the 1918 Spanish flu, that was the last time we probably had a, a health crisis of this magnitude. For comparison with COVID-19, the Spanish flu was a deadly influenza pandemic that lasted from 1918 to 1920 and affected about a third of the world's population at the time, about 500 million people. Similarly with COVID-19, the flu impacted public health and the economy far less in Australia than other parts of the world. And many of the restrictions employed today were used then too. The biggest difference between then and now is today there's a larger emphasis on spending and social activity, 
And now, we have technology on our side. Plus, now we have the Kardashians. And it's up to you whether this is a pro or a con. One of the positives we can take from the Spanish flu is the period of strong economic growth that followed. The labour market appears to have recovered really quickly, especially given that this was before a significant pharmaceutical century. You know, the world kept going and in fact, you know, history sort of suggests that people's uh, optimism, their ability to bounce back, their resilience, it, it shines through every time. And I'll fess up that uh, when I first started in banking, I was just heading into what became the 91, 92 recession. And so I'm probably a, in a, a growing minority of people that have actually worked through a, a recession other than the one we've just had. So there's been a long time between drinks and it's been incredible for Australia that we had 29 years of uninterrupted growth. This time, even though we went into the pandemic in relatively good shape. Uh, it wasn't enough to stop us going into a recession. You know, pr- the deepest global recession for about 90 years, certainly the deepest recession in Australia in living history or living memory, I should say. So it, it's hard not to be uh, spooked by that and to worry about your finances. But important takeaway from recessions is that they're followed by recoveries. And history says that the recoveries are generally really strong coming out of recession, you've got to keep your faith. So David, let's just clarify, what is a recession? Okay, the the textbook definition of a recession is where you've got two quarters in a row, a quarter being three months. Uh, so basically where you've got six months of the economy going backwards. And that's exactly what we had for the first half of this year. In other words, over that six month period, uh, we're not going to be pr- producing as much there's not going to be as much economic output. And generally, during a recession, the unemployment rate moves higher. And in fact, a lot of the job losses were in younger workers and the impact was greater in some of the more vulnerable parts of um, society. So something that, yes, does snowball potentially. So that's why you need to minimise that period of time. You know, at least the government response has been to try to uh, help those areas first. I'm glad that has been their approach. And they're talking about building a bridge between where we were and where we're headed to the safe other side of the of the recession. Is that to New Zealand? Is that <laughs> from Sydney to New Zealand? Is that where the bridge is going to go? Yeah, I like that. <laughs> With the introduction of job seeker, job keeper, and job maker, the Australian government has worked pretty tirelessly to ensure our recession is short lived and the economy remains afloat. But what does any of this mean for you and me? The economy to me sounds a bit like the cloud does to my dad, because it isn't this tangible thing that we can see thriving. When the government initiatives are off the shelf next year, will our economy cloud come crashing down? Or is this just a shit metaphor? You know, job seeker, and I know there are concerns that uh, it's meant to be finishing at the end of the year, um, and that subsidy, COVID-19 supplement, uh, has already come down. Uh, at least it's over and above, you know, what the old new start was. You know, you could have the debate about how much of that you'd prefer to see there uh, forever rather than getting rid of it completely. But that's been a, a help, uh, just in the interim. 
Then, you know, with JobKeeper, which is more so for businesses to try to keep them going during the sort of COVID lockdown period, and that's been especially necessary in Melbourne with its second wave. Again, it's come down. It was 1,500 a fortnight. It's come down to 1,200. It's heading down to 1,000 uh, for next year, and it's meant to finish at the end of March. Again, I, th- I think it's been relatively effective. This isn't meant to downplay the impact of it all, but because the unemployment rate only went from 5 to percent to 7.5, initially people were worried it was going to 10, 12, and, and higher than that. So it sort of stemmed the tide. Well, it it has, and I know there's still too much youth unemployment and there's things like underemployment and so on, but nevertheless, that main test uh, is actually, if you benchmark it against other countries, we've done comparatively better. Uh, But then you've got JobMaker. They just keep using similar terms, but (laughs) JobMaker, and that runs for another couple, uh, you know, for two years. It's only just started, but that runs for two years through to uh, October 2022. And that's a wage subsidy again, targeted at younger workers. Thank you, David, for the detailed breakdown. And thank you also for acknowledging the naming convention. This all sounds like a Seinfeld bit. So is coming up with the names for job support subsidies a job? Because if it's a job, it seems like a pretty easy job. So what's your job? Well, my job is to take the word job and add words to it. That sounds like a fun job. It's a great job. How long have you had that job? Since there weren't any more jobs. You know, I thought one of the important announcements in the budget a few weeks ago was that they are going to continue supporting uh, the economy uh, until the unemployment rate is safely below 6%. So there's a definite link between the jobs market and how much support's being provided. It's difficult to second guess where government policy's going, but have some confidence that that support should be there uh, for as long as it's needed, because you wouldn't want to take away support too quickly uh, if the economy isn't walking on its own two feet. While economists and academics typically expect a natural level of unemployment, due to technological advancements and the structure of the workforce allowing people to flow to and from companies, the pandemic has forced unemployment to worryingly high levels. Involuntary and prolonged unemployment is obviously devastating for individuals, their families and the wider community. The impact of this unemployment can also flow on to impact the economy, as people are unable to contribute to the economy through productive work, and also less able to support businesses in the community as their expenditure falls. Prolonged unemployment can severely impact living standards in retirement, and the negative impacts can also flow on intergenerationally from parents to their children. This increases the burden carried by society to meet both physical and mental health needs of those afflicted. So a government commitment to manage the unemployment rate is welcome news indeed. Do you have any practical advice for people who are currently on JobSeeker and JobKeeper and it might be coming to an end for them? How should they be thinking about managing their finances. Yeah, from a planning point of view, you've got to be across what the numbers are going to look like for you individually because there will be less money coming through come January than there has been. And so we go back to the comments around budgeting, make sure that's in your planning, uh, that you know exactly where you where you sit and therefore you're planning you know, the months ahead based on those real numbers and not based on what was a, a bit of a one-off. One thing I observed during the pandemic is that a lot of people realized that um, life is very short. Mm. And I know a lot of people um, who were like, oh, life is so short. It's always been a dream of mine. I'm going to try comedy. And whereas me as a comedian during the pandemic, I was like, I've got to quit 
comedy. You mm. know what I mean? Do you think people need to sort of reevaluate? Or is yeah, it... is it that drastic? Do they need to take a complete U-turn? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting thought. And and again, I don't think you'd want to completely change your approach uh, to life and what you're passionate about just because of a one in a hundred year event. Uh, even if that that might become more frequent than one in a hundred. But uh, my point is, you know, you got to follow your passion, don't you? Uh, and look, a, a lot of the parts of the economy that were more dependent, uh, not just on tourism, but on being able to socialise, uh, they were the ones that were hit hardest and therefore they required the most government support and you could argue whether or not that support's been sufficient. But, you know, for mine, that will all bounce back. It's just a case of how long that takes. You know, you'd, you'd hate for if someone's dream or their passion is in a certain sector uh, as difficult as this year has been, I wouldn't want them to give up on that dream because, you know, things will change. Demand will come back. You know, I, I don't know exactly what the some of those demographic changes and sociological changes, you know, people are going to be less inclined to be living near the CBD. People might be more inclined to live in, you know, in the regions. But that won't make some of those industries unviable. It just means they'll need to evolve. So it's worth noting that with mental health on a decline and a bunch of weird and not so wonderful new habits formed this year due to isolation, and I'm not just talking about the time I gave myself and my cat matching bowl cuts, Australia is facing big societal changes as a result of the pandemic. 80% of Australians believe we'll be going through the throes of COVID-19 for at least two years, and 61% say they feel drained by ongoing restrictions thus far. In contrast, 70% of people now working from home actually say they're in no rush to get back to the workplace or public gatherings. My question is, are we becoming Nigels? This is not one of the questions we'll answer next. Even before the pandemic, people were moving to more sporadic forms of work. Mm. Do you have advice for them how to plan their finances living in uh, such an uncertain time in a pandemic or uh, post-pandemic world while also working in the gig economy. What are yeah. some tips people should be thinking about to help stay on top of their finances? Yeah, and look, the gig economy, I suppose it's better that you've got a gig economy where it is than, no, than nothing at all in that space that's at least supported some jobs growth. But the trouble with the gig economy is, you know, it's, it has less of a safety net for workers. It's, uh, it's mainly casual rather than part-time. And, uh, you know, so labour rights, if you like, are challenged by all of that. You've got to understand the shortcomings of it and, you know, it, it might be less reliable, it might have less of a safety net attached to it and therefore you've got to plan accordingly. So, you know, I think a lot of that comes back to sort of government support. Uh, the fact that the workforce is very different today to 10 years ago or 15 years ago because uh, the gig economy didn't exist then. So therefore, oh, well, what are federal and state governments doing to support that? And, you know, that might take a bit of time. You know, there's arguments for things like universal basic income. I mean, that's that's a really interesting philosophy. Uh, it's not going to happen in a hurry, but they're trialling it in, in Europe and places like that. And that's the type of thing which actually might require that sort of radical uh, overhaul um, to cater with the reality of things like the gig economy. But, uh, you know, until then, um, it's just a case of understanding what your, your working conditions are and then 
that flows through to what your plans are uh, and a realistic understanding of, uh, you know, from a budget point of view, what, what that means for you. And, you know, to the extent that that's not working for you, all right, what's the plan to, um, to move to another part of the workforce and whether or not that involves uh, study or some course as a bridge to uh, trying to get into another part of the workforce, well, then that's got to be uh, one of your considerations. You mentioned universal basic income before. Hmm. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, so given how the workforce is changing and with automation and so on, there's a lot of jobs that just won't be here in five years' time. Think of the whole transport industry, self-driving cars and trucks. So what do you do in an economy when you've got a whole heap of jobs that just aren't going to be there anymore because of technological change? The governments themselves will be richer because this technology is driving profitable businesses but you're going to have different people employed and you may well have less people employed. So universal basic income says, okay, government, you're still pretty well off because technology is driving wealth. Uh, Why don't you use that wealth to pay everyone a basic amount, the least that people might need to get by, and that way you'll help to transition the workforce. Detractors would say, oh, if you just hand people money, they won't work. But the counter-argument to that is, no, there's just as much incentive to work whether or not you're receiving universal basic income or not. You still get that pick-up from a job, so you still want to get a job. Uh, So it's really a way of trying to deal with all the uh, automation that's coming through and the um, radical impact that's going to have on the workforce. Uh, The question is, how do you roll that out and maintain the same incentives to work? And so that, that needs a bit of planning. So a UBI could be an effective way to transition the economy into a more automated future. Maybe we could call it Job Replacer. See, I'd be pretty good at that job job. Job Replacer! All right. Sorry, guys. I'm going to have to ask it. I have to ask it. Do you think that capitalism has failed us? No, I don't. And the main reason I say that is if you look at all of the measures of... Uh, inequality of wealth, uh, of opportunity and longevity. Inequalities struggled a bit the last 10 years. I might just leave that to one side. But capitalism over the last 250 years has driven an improvement in all those measures. So it hasn't failed us. Where, however, you see examples of it failing you, e.g. the GFC, is where there isn't sufficient oversight to drive capitalism in the right direction. So these concepts of, uh, you know, inclusive growth, not just GDP growth, and making sure we're growing the economy for everyone, not just for a few, become really important. But that's not capitalism's fault. That's the oversight of the capitalist society that you need to get right. Yeah. I think you are my dad. That's that's exactly what he would say. All right. Well, let's hear from some people. Uh, this pandemic has seen me be on a slightly more stable income. I don't think you'd really call it an income. It's, you know, um, Centrelink. <laughs> Gotta love Centrelink right now. For my household, my husband hit a 20% pay cut. So we definitely haven't been able to put away too much money. I think it's very well known that casuals were the ones to suffer the most because of coronavirus. I think that's very publicly well known, but um, 
the ways to fix that are much less discussed in public, which is a real shame. I did find that I was saving more, actually, which was kind of sick, because um, obviously the pubs being shut means that their best customer can't go in. Um, but yeah, I I have squandered most of those savings uh, coming out of lockdown. I mean, it's it's kind of like a pendulum. It'll swing one way and then it is going to swing back the other. With having a business that's mine, it's not knowing whether we're going to have to go into lockdown again. And that uncertainty is still around. Like everyone's sort of saying, oh, well, it'll be okay. 2021, everything will be fine. I'm like, mm, don't think the virus is going away just because it clicks over to 2021. One thing that's definitely changed uh, is no more trips, no more holidays overseas. Mm. Uh, this is a hypothetical. It's not my circumstances. But if I had saved up 10K, maybe I did. Maybe I have saved up 10K, all right? Who, who, Let's say you, you have. Okay. <laughs> if I've saved up 10K for a big Europe trip, um, I can't obviously make that trip right now. Do you have any view as what a sensible thing to do with that cash might be? So that's a really good question. I mean, I, I wouldn't want Thank to... Thank you. I asked it because it's, <laughs> it's, it's definitely a question that I wrote. <laughs> so I wouldn't want people, again, given we've been through such an unusual period, to completely change how they're going about you know, having holidays and, and getting the work-life balance right. So I, I still think we should be trying to have nice breaks as regularly as possible, but maybe it's a great reminder that, um, hey, you can spend your money here in Australia and maybe one of the things our economy needs is, given we're not going to have people coming from overseas spending their money for a while, um, at least we can have locals holidaying locally and spending money. That's a great idea. Why not go to somewhere you know, give a bit of support to those communities. Absolutely. Uh, but, but, you know, don't give up on your dream to go overseas, but maybe just uh, make that a five-year plan rather than a, a one-year plan. I love that. That's great. I think I'll have 10K in five years. Um, <laughs> and if I've got a, a mortgage at the moment uh, and I'm living through this pandemic, do you think there's extra considerations that I should be making or is it kind of, as you say, buckling down and just business as usual. Yeah, and look, having a, a mortgage is a, a significant obligation. And, you know, when this all first hit, there was a, a lot of concern that the, the property market was really going to go for a, a tailspin. Uh, it hasn't really emerged that way in the end. I mean, in some of the larger capital cities, prices have fallen. But, you know, for most of Australia, it's actually been very little difference. But if you're a, a mortgage holder, well, you've got to have that job security to keep covering the uh, the repayment. You know, in some instances, maybe people will be tempted to rent out their property and negative gear it and live somewhere else. But uh, that's one of the challenges is, is managing those commitments during the downturns. Uh, at least interest rates are at record lows. Um, so that's sort of part of the offset there. Hopefully, because of all the government support, that this was actually a, a relatively brief recession. Let's hope that's how it pans out. Interest rates have fallen from 19% in the mid-80s to just 0.1% in a pandemic world. The Reserve Bank of Australia is committing to this rate for the next three years. But what does that mean for the average Joe? And what does it mean for us? And why does Joe always get his own special advice? especially when he's average. This is good news if you have a mortgage, especially with a fixed rate, because your repayments are likely to be cheaper. But as for your savings, well, you can say goodbye to earning interest for a while.
I know you, you obviously don't have a crystal ball. Or I've got a, one. It's just not always all that effective. Yeah, great. Well, if you want to look into it right now, is it basically a vaccine? Is that the turning point in terms of this recession? Oh, well, the, the way I think about it is there's sort of three stages to it. You sort of had the, the down leg when we shut down the economy. We sort of rebooted the economy. We asked IT what to do and they said switch it off and turn it back on again. <laughs> so we've had the switching off, Not turning back works. on. We're now, you know, moving back to this COVID safe economy. And again, you look at the numbers and actually the bounce back's been pretty good because of the, the government handing out the uh, the fiscal packages and so on. But until you get to that post-pandemic economy, and that's after the vaccine, it's going to be challenging. So, yeah, my crystal ball would say we've probably got, what, another six months or so plus uh, of this COVID-safe economy where we're just trying to get through it all, trying to get back to normal, but we're sort of looking over our shoulder because where's the next outbreak going to be, you know, the next hotspot, all that sort of stuff, second waves and third waves. But then then that's where I would have thought you go through a period where there's far more confidence. So that's the, that's the post-pandemic economy. I'll go back to my analogy of the... Um, the 1918 Spanish flu, and that was hot on the heels of World War One. Then all of a sudden you had the Roaring Twenties and, um, you know, people spent like there was no tomorrow. Admittedly, they did have the 1929 crash, but don't worry about that. Yeah. Uh, but that's, you know, that's how quickly confidence can suddenly emerge and um, my suspicion is will be pretty similar this time. To be honest, I couldn't help but feel encouraged by David's half-full glass, even if it did mean I never had occasion to ask all those questions I wrote about the importance of studying Mad Max. So this is, this is exactly, I think, why we, we wanted to talk to you, David, today, because I think we wanted to know that, you know, things do return, they do bounce back. I mean, in uh, one of the earlier episodes, we talked about investing and the idea was you should have a, a long-term view, start thinking about it now, start squirreling away money into hmm. savings and into investing because you're thinking about the long-term. Does the pandemic change that for us? I don't think it does change it. In fact, it's just a good example of why that's the right approach. And, you know, my rule of thumb is countries typically have a recession every seven, eight, nine years. Australia's had a couple of dodge tides there, so we've been lucky to go 29 years. But you should expect some form of unexpected shock. They call them black swan events, uh, you know, every decade or so. Okay, so I just want to talk about that phrase, a black swan event. It's a term that describes an event that is a complete surprise and that has a major impact and is often inappropriately rationalised after the fact with the benefit of hindsight. Thanks, Wikipedia. The funny thing about it is that it's based on an ancient Latin saying that presumed that black swans don't exist. But then, in 1697, Dutch explorers in Western Australia became the first Europeans to see an actual black swan. They probably saw heaps of them. And so the phrase developed to refer to the idea that a perceived impossibility might later be disproven. Now, I don't have a joke on this. It's just funny already. If you want more content like that, listen to my Phrases podcast. So it certainly makes sense to, to build a bit of a buffer to prepare yourself for that. And that's exactly you know what we've had this year. My personal view is the, the worst part of that for the economy was you know, around April, May, June, uh, and it's been actually trying to recover a bit since then. But, yeah, absolutely, we should be expecting shocks every decade or so, 
and it's a case of how you build resilience to do that and building a bit of a um, bit of a buffer there to cope for the for the unexpected. You're basically saying people should, when you take a long-term view, account for the fact that there's going to be some bumps. Exactly. Yeah, I think um, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone whose mental health hadn't been impacted in some way by COVID. Um, and yeah, for me, that's I think that's true as well. Um, it, it does loop back to finances. So yeah, I guess the fear for me is the the fear of um, insecure employment or potentially changed working conditions. Um, and and yeah, like that that does take its toll on your mental health because. If you're doing it eight hours a day, five days a week, you know, it's a pretty big part of your life, whether you're in love with it or not. So, yeah. I've actually never been busier. The biggest struggle I've had is I've been very tough on myself for not realising that I could work this hard before. I've been, my attitude towards work before had been quite lackadaisical. It made me quite feel quite angry at myself that I hadn't done that earlier, that I hadn't, that I hadn't pushed myself at all. Then, on the flip side, my partner lost her job and she hasn't worked for six months. So we have been in two completely opposite situations. Obviously, mental health is a big issue at the moment. And I think as a society, we're starting to be more open in our conversations about mental health, which is a big relief especially during a time like this. Mm. This pandemic is only going to put strain on people who struggle with mental health. What would you say to empower those people who are feeling particularly helpless in the next few months and the next sort of year to 18 months? Yeah, and there's no question that because of COVID-19, physical health, health, mental health, there's a lot of people impacted. And, uh, you know, when it comes to, to any health issue, you know, you've got to seek support, uh, so in the case of mental health, uh, reach out, don't go it alone. In, in terms of money, stress about money, you know, there are websites like moneysmart.gov.au. So there's a lot of free information there and free support that you can access. So, you know, you've got to look after your own well-being. It's, it's been such a challenging period, not just for business owners, but also for, you know, impacted employees. And, and from a health perspective, you know, think about the impact of all of this on aged care and, and those with medical conditions. So it uh, couldn't have been tougher, really, could it, for a lot of those vulnerable areas. But finding, you know, professional help, professional advice uh, has got to be part of the solution. What would your, like, final word of wisdom be to to people who are currently, like, trying to take control of their financial future during this pandemic about how they can feel empowered? Look, to, to, to keep planning for the future, having been through a, a pandemic and a deep recession doesn't mean that we should rethink, you know, the sensible approaches to managing your finances, not to let it distract you from what had been your game plan and and from doing what you know is the uh, uh, the most sensible approach for you. So the, le- the lesson kind of is when everyone was telling you to plan ahead, this is the example. This is probably as bad an example, hopefully, as uh, you'll experience in the next 100 years. But this is, this is the reason why it's so important to 
save for a rainy day or invest for your future. Yeah, I think that's a great way to summarise it. It's exactly what we've been through this year that we receive all that great advice. Okay. We should take comfort and be empowered by the fact that we happen to live in a country that uh, has relatively high levels of prosperity. Uh, So the future should be bright as long as we manage it effectively. Um, and therefore, we should plan our finances in line with um, with what should be a, a very bright 10, 20 years ahead of us, even if the current one, two years is, is very challenging. And say uh, it, your crystal ball reading is incorrect mm-hmm. and we actually are on a, you know, a one-way track back to the Stone Age. <laughs> the real question is, do I, should I be considering taking out a loan for a car where I have to use my feet to... <laughs> To run it forward. <laughs> I don't think we're heading back to the Flintstones, not in, not in a hurry. Um, okay. Pretty confident that um, things will keep advancing and uh, it's incredible where we are today from five years ago, let alone 15 years ago. But, you know, uh, what did they get right in the, uh, in, in the Stone Age? They were probably better at some aspects of sustainability than we are today. So uh, maybe that's where we can learn from our, uh, our ancestors Treat the planet right as well as ourselves and we'll be fine. Hey, you there. The world's not actually ending. You can come out from under that rock. Okay, so what a relief. In fact, in previous episodes, almost all our experts encourage taking a long-term view and being prepared to ride out any waves. It turns out this pandemic is just an example of said waves. History shows us the economy and society's confidence has always bounced back from even the toughest trot. While we're likely to be sitting deep in a recession for the immediate future, David's advice for those of us a few decades out from retirement is hang tight, step back, and think about the big picture. So in the meantime, what can we do to weather the storm? Well, seek support, offer support, and don't feel you have to go it alone. Whether it be your mental health or managing your finances, now, more than ever, there's a case for seeking professional help. So what's the lesson from 2020 when it comes to managing our finances? Well, it's not how does the world we're living in today recontextualize all the great tips we've learned over the past few weeks. Actually, the world we're living in today is proof that when it comes to money, we're doing ourselves a huge favor in taking a long-term view. That means sitting down and thinking about what success means to us, setting goals and committing to those goals. It means setting money aside for a rainy day. It means investing money with a view to letting it grow over time and understanding that there will be tough times and the best way to survive those tough times is to not panic. But always remember the big picture. My very last question though before I let you go, uh, what are you going to spend your next $20 on? Today? or uh... Yeah, today. Not, not if we went back to the Stone Age. <laughs> Uh, well, probably six cups of coffee. Um, the uh, <laughs> yeah, right. That's my caffeine good. addiction has not got any better through COVID nineteen. Uh, yeah, so you've you've got to have your your, your small pleasures like that to keep you going. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, David. Oh, that's great. Well, thanks very much. And even though the next few years will be challenging, there's there's a lot to be hopeful for. Thank you to David and all our other contributors. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Bendigo Bank Official or tweet us at Bendigo Bank. 
check out our other great episodes on everything from the psychology of money to a beginner's guide to investing to how to actually buy a house. You can find out more about everything we've spoken about today at bendigobank.com.au forward slash life coach podcast. A quick reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the relevant individual and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of the Bendigo and Adelaide Bank Group. The information contained is current as at November 2020 and is subject to change without notice. Before making any investment or financial decision, you should seek independent advice and read the appropriate disclosure documents. This podcast was created for Bendigo Bank by Subverses and written and produced by Tanya Barbic, Jason Sukadana, and me, Saren Jayamana. Also produced by Holly Jane and junior produced and researched by Tom Atkinson. All recording and post-production by Versus Studio.